content warning. This episode contains a story that depicts domestic violence. This takes place between minutes 36 and 46. Hello Story Seekers, I'm Nico. I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. Our guest for this episode is a London-born and Buckinghamshire-based, like all the best people, poet and author. In 2014, The Guardian praised his poetry for its quiet intelligence and subtle ways of seeing. His debut novel, The Paper Lantern, catapulted him into The Observer's top ten debut novelists of 2021. We'd like to welcome Will Burns. Hello, Will. Hi, hi both. How are you doing? Ben and Nico. Very good. So we we have just realised that uh, you're potentially quite close to where Nico is because he's based in Bucks as well. Only geographically. I mean, in terms of the author thing, you're way above. <laughs> <laughs> well, ge- ge- geographical location trumps um, trumps anything else as far okay. as I'm concerned. So where, whereabouts are you, Nico? I'm a, a High Wycombe person. Oh, OK. Yeah. So just along the hill line, basically. Yeah. Just I mean, along the hill line. Everything's a bloody hill here. This is... Yeah. This is how small England is for everyone that's listening in, in the States, <laughs> just along the hill line. I like that. Um, your uh, your book, Paper Lantern, has a lot of stuff about uh, going for walks in that area as well. So does that kind of turn of phrase come quite naturally to you? Yeah, I suppose. Um, I, uh, yeah, the, the, the hills are quite, they're quite a prominent sort of geographic feature. Um I'm I'm in a place called Wendover, which is which, which is you know I mean High Wycombe would be would be a, a, a the, the closest kind of big big town I guess, right. um, uh, and they the 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 hills might not perhaps loom quite so large in in a, in the in the bigger in the bigger towns, but we're right in the right in the sort of um, the the valley of, of of two quite high points in in the Chilterns and. Um, yeah, so you, you you walk out of either end of the village, so to speak, and you're you're up in the you're up in the hills. And if you're keen on that sort of thing, um, then then they 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 tend to kind of creep into your imagination quite a lot. That's lovely. How did you um, was was Paper Lantern conceived during the lockdown, or were you already working on it and then there was a lockdown? Um. Uh, it sounds a bit strange maybe but uh, p- perhaps um a little bit of both there was um that i've been kind of working or struggling might be a better um word uh with the material for for years you know the kind of the book about your hometown and i'd always wanted to write about um pubs because i, I you know i love pubs and um uh, i've always been fascinated by by their by their appeal and their kind of you know the, the 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 material sort of facts of 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 of, of them um and so i i've all, you know i'd always known that i'd probably write a book like this this book um but then equally the gestation of it was particular to the lockdown as well um a, a friend of mine was um was editing a, a sort of online um journal i suppose it it, it was he runs a bar and he, that when the lockdowns happened and the bar closed they turned the website of, of of their bar in London into a kind of cultural magazine, I suppose. Um, oh, wow. they had, they had, yeah, they had sort of music writing on there, um, playlists, 
this, this place called The Social in, in Great Portland Street. Anyway, he, he asked me if I wanted to write something. Um, and he asked, he, he sort of specifically said, oh, you know, prose would be good. Um, and so I sat down and, and a couple of days later and I, I thought I'm going to write about the, the, the pub, my mum and dad's pub, which was, which was closed. And I'm going to write about how, how the, the closure sort of affected them. And, 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 um, and then, it, and so I was, I was writing a kind of, um, 3000 word sort of journal every week. Um, and that, that turned into the, the, the kind of the spine of the novel really, um, that's fascinating. That's, that's almost yeah. like quite old fashioned way of writing a novel, isn't it? That's quite Dickensian. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was a, a kind of um, outdoorsy lockdown Dickens. Um, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it's yeah a bit of a bit of both is the answer really. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll get on to talking about that um, a little bit more. But um, do you see yourself primarily as a uh, a prose writer, or were you a did, were you very firmly a poet first and then came to prose, or I think, um, you know, it'd be fair to say that, that I was, I, you know, I, I only really had any kind of a reputation, small as it was, as, as, a, as a poet. And, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd submitted a couple of short stories to places. I'd, I'd spoke to a couple of people about, about some, some, some bits. But, uh, you know, I'd written a few reviews and a few kind of essay-type things. Um, but really, you know, my, my um, imaginative... Uh, process was all was always was always geared towards poetry um but equally you know that 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 felt like it was part of um partly to do with the time constraints that i had i've always had to work as well as write and um so i had you know little snatches of time and poetry seemed to fit better with that um and whereas in that 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 first lockdown particularly um you know i i, I found myself with all the kind of time on your hands that you that you wish for um, as a as a as a as a writer sometimes, albeit with certain caveats, yeah. um, obviously. Um, uh, so yeah, it, yeah, I, I think I, I think it I think it changed my my way of working for sure. It's fascinating. It's, it's great to know that you used it creatively and efficiently as well. I, as a musician, we theoretically had loads of time in the lockdown to write music, but all of the stuff you wrote was so miserable. Because you, you know, you used to write yeah. songs about rocking and rolling and having a good time, and it was like, yeah, just staying in, doing sod all, oh, for a short walk. This isn't good. Yeah. Well, I don't. Oh, think, is... I don't think the paper lantern kind of moves moves particularly far out of um, out of the remit of that of, of of the description there, really about about being miserable and uh, and and and, and um, in, in interior. Um, but perhaps um, perhaps it suits. Perhaps it suits prose fiction more than it suits rock and roll music, which which might require a certain amount of gaiety to um to function. I'm getting that on a shirt. <laughs> Requires a certain amount of gaiety to function. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Uh, yeah. I, I right, agree. With, I think you should get that shirt. With that masterful <laughs> act of wordsmithing already happening, I reckon we're going to have some stories. So our regular listeners will know how it goes by now. There'll be three stories told, and all of them have been written to the same shared prompt. This week, our prompt is Most Sour. Ben, you're up first. Most Sour. His Royal Highness and Father of All wants more lemons, said the priest of the body. 
How? How can he want more? replied Beckett. It is not for you or I to question the will of a god. Demigod? Look, there simply aren't any more. We had the last deliveries from our southern border towns two weeks ago. Summer is a fading memory. Such news would be best delivered by the Viceroy, said the old man and accompanied it with a deep bow. You are a coward. I am merely the priest of his most holy body. You are his descendant and chosen representative. I speak his word, in this case, to you. The priest smiled with affected innocence as he spoke. Get out of my sight, you glorified manservant. The old man did not wait to be told a second time, and quickly scampered from the balcony. Viceroy Beckett IV clenched his fists and pressed them into the stone of the balcony's rail, as he stared unhappily out at the royal parkland. The autumnal vista that spilled forth under him was drenched in the deep gold of the setting sun. The oversized garden was verdant and immaculate on the king's orders, though he had not set foot in there for nearly a century. Beckett drew in a few deep breaths to calm himself. Fear and frustration warred within him, and he knew fear would always win when it came to the will of the king. Beckett gathered his robes about himself and made for the royal sanctum. The building was a palace within a palace. Generations of viceroys had expanded the original palatial compound to accommodate the changing fashions and moods of the royal court without disturbing the king. None of them had dared to change that original building at its heart, with its original king still in place. Beckett's journey had him make a stark transition from the light and pleasant halls of his father's father to the dark stone of the king's fortress. It had been built for a different time by long-forgotten masons, and it squatted in the middle of the new palace like a toad in a flowering bush. A moment in time held in perpetuity by the demigod who ruled it. The royal sanctum, as the people called it, had but a few true entrances, and most of them were barred by rusted shut doors or ruined masonry. The main doors, however, were kept in good repair by the old priest, and Beckett saw two servants were standing a morose guard by it. I am here to see the king. Is it about the lemons? said one. He was a handsome middle-aged man, and Beckett vaguely recognised him as one who had served as a catamite for the king. That was before the royal member had dropped off, and, if the stories were to be believed, into someone. Beckett forgave the man's impudence and suppressed the shudder at the thought. Yes, if you would open the doors now, we can get this over with. The mighty doors swung open, and Beckett was buffeted by a gust of cold air. The crypt smell of it made the hairs on the back of his neck stand on end. Beckett pulled his heavy robes tightly to himself and swept past the servants. The door closed behind him, and he was forced to proceed through the empty welcoming hall in the half-light that filtered from somewhere within the ancient site. The stairs to the king's chambers swept upwards in a broad curve from the end of the welcoming hall. As he ascended, Beckett had to jump over some missing steps that had fallen to the ruin of time. At the top, he pulled aside the heavy dust-laden curtain, which marked the entrance to the king's chambers, and stepped inside. Beckett tried to keep his royal visits as infrequent as possible, and was expecting to see the usual piles of books and sheaves of scrawled-on writing paper that often covered every available surface in their gargantuan room. Instead, maps were pulled taut over them, and Beckett could see markers had been placed upon them. Even the bed, he saw, was home to several maps with ancient curling edges. Something compressed under his boot, and he looked down to see the floor was littered with the desiccated husks of lemons.
Where are my lemons? Beckett kept his eyes on the floor and bowed his head. My king, I have come to discuss the matter with you. I require more. The bone-on-stone scraping of the king's footsteps crossed behind him. As the seasons change, our land cannot sustain its production. We must needs wait until the coming year before the lemons will fruit again. Invade the south. My king? Here. The king's rasp directed him. Beckett finally raised his gaze. Rich royal clothes draped irregularly over the king's meatless frame. Though slumped in the slovenly stance of one without many of the necessary tendons, the father of all was still over seven feet tall, and Beckett looked up into his empty sockets. The burning shadows of the eyes that had once lived there stared at him. Beckett's eyes followed the king's extended arm and saw that the skeletal fingers pointed to the largest map on the table he was standing next to. Beckett walked over to stand next to the king. The finger bones had stabbed into the southern peninsula, which was held by the Tamnite dynasty. Peace had existed between the two powers since the time of Beckett's grandfather. You wish us to invade our allies' land for lemons? My tongue can yet taste them. Invade now and bring me lemons. Beckett stared up into the polished bone of his ancestor and saw nothing but implacable madness. The world that everyone else exists in, thought Beckett, cannot be reconciled with the king's point of view. He is unable to die, but his flesh still rots. He is king, but others still rule in his stead. Half a god and totally inhuman. Beckett cleared his throat of the king's stink. I will see to the arrangements, my king, said Beckett to the shambling ossuary. The king's order was a rasping scream that chased him from the room, down the stairs, and back out of the main door. Beckett took a moment to try and catch his breath when he found the fresh air again, but the horror of his reality made him wretch. The ex-catamite chuckled at his misfortune. He felt strange for a moment, before realising what was different. The warring factions of fear and frustration within him felt as though they had joined forces to create something new. Iron-hard determination. Laugh if you wish, said Beckett as he wiped his mouth on his sleeve. But do so as you fetch the masons from the town. You what? We are done with this. The old ways have to end. Fetch the masons, and we will brick up this mausoleum for good. Beckett wasn't sure when he'd made the decision, but once he'd said it, it was impossible to unsay. The masons were fetched from the town, and began the work of sealing the sanctum. Beckett watched them work all through the night, and then retired to his balcony to watch the sunrise on a new day. With the morning came the priest of the body, who scrambled into his presence, his outrage emanating from him like a bad smell. The priest stood over Beckett, who remained reclined on a long couch. Treason! It is treason! He shouted at Beckett. All you had to do was invade! Instead, regicide! He is not dead. He cannot truly die. I've simply stopped him from killing us. What do you think that will happen when the people hear of this? You will be burned alive, and they will cheer as he is rescued from your prison. Beckett remained calm. 
The people will do as you and I tell them, priest. I see no reason you should not be able to continue in a more active role within our council, as the only one capable of deciphering the true commands of the king, you would become a very powerful man. The silence stretched out as Beckett watched the priest's worldview shift. He sat forward slowly before speaking again. Alternatively, I could throw you off this balcony and claim you fell. Ah, yes, I, I see you have the right of it, spoke the priest quickly. I will endeavour to serve our king in my new role as, uh... High Priest of the Body. Very good, Viceroy. The newly minted High Priest bowed and left the room. Beckett did not doubt he would misuse his newfound power, but it was better to have his help than him be a hindrance. Beckett stood and gazed once more at the Royal Parkland. The new day's sun had scalded the horizon's clouds with pinks and purples, and the blue of the sky seemed to have awakened. Compared to the previous night, he thought, the land looked very different. Come on, man, bro just wanted some lemons. <laughs> just wanted some lemons. <laughs> that was wicked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Big fan of demigod skeleton kings <laughs> hungering for citrus. Yeah, um... It was actually an idea that came to me a, a fair a fair while ago. Uh, I had partaken of uh, certain substances, and um, <laughs> it, it occurred to me that uh, it would be fascinating for a, a sort of like a, a demigod who's still rotted, and the processes that they'd go through as they as that happened for them. So basically, this guy's still got like a little bit of his tongue, and it's the bit that can taste bitter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, I, it was it was full of full of astounding images. Um, the the kind of um, jumping off point for which I suppose was the uh, mention of the royal member. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah a, 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 amazingly handled there. Um, yeah, I thought yeah, I thought it was great. It was a really good moment that began that sort of explosion into the oh this. This king isn't a, a demigod in that people say he's divine, but there is something inhuman about him. It was when you just sort of offhandedly mentioned that he hadn't been into the garden for a century. I thought, oh, something's amiss. And it was just very delicately the layers put on, you know, then quite quickly into his dick had fallen off in someone. <laughs> right up to uh, Bros a skeleton. That's uh... Yeah, meatless frame. Meatless frame was another another good another good one, yeah. But I, I I quite like the fact that you know the sort of the court politics and the there was this the, the language around all that was quite was sort of quotidian and 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 quite kind of like full of the bureaucracy of of those kind of very human aspects to court life, you know the the yeah. the, the ranks and you know the the sort of the the, the petty status kind of um plays and then you know behind all that is this yeah like you say um sort of skeleton king you know who, who's um who, you know with a kind of a megalomania based solely on the last the last remaining kind of humanity of of of, of his of his sensual life which is tasting lemons <laughs> lemons yeah exactly gave me um 
big Warhammer 40,000 God Emperor of Mankind vibes. Did it? Uh, only in the, uh, you know, that he's, he's in a big life support machine and he's slowly becoming a, an old skeleton, but right. still acts as this uh, eternally living psychic being. I hadn't made that connection, but yeah, I can see it. I can see what yeah. you're saying. But, Did he uh, eat catamites? Uh, no, they feed him uh, thousands of souls a day. Oh, that's it's, it's similar, similar. Yeah, but you know, no lemons, so uh, second best as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> if you can't, if life gives you souls, then make soul aid or, or whatever <laughs> the, the phrase is. Um, but yeah, no, I, I get that analogy with um, with that with that character in in the Warhammer forty thousand world and um th there's that other element about the the power that increases in all the people that are therefore able to kind of you know the chaplains and all that 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 yeah. kind of, um yeah. strata of, of 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 character in that world that can interpret you know the wishes of the emperor or and and, and the you know the signs and 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 subtleties of of a, of a of a sort of absent ruler who still as a, as a symbol contains all that power really yeah it's uh... I, I think it was sort of accidental in a way, but uh, I think it is a fairly aggressive attack on traditional power bases. Yeah. Um, also, yeah, it's... Nobody a, comes out of that looking good, you know. A very Ben Holroyd Dell story hallmark of, or oh, I could just throw you off that balcony. <laughs> yeah. Which felt like every uh, Song of Ice and Fire session yeah, yeah. that you've ever really sunk your teeth into. That was very good. One of your hallmarks done well. I'm glad. Yeah, the, uh, good, the good threat. Yeah, the, the the correct use of threat, especially in high power political situations. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was it was a lot of fun to write. I think because I, I sort of found with with uh, Mo Sal that I was um, skipping around a fair bit, trying to figure out how to how to work with it, and yeah, uh, and I, I very much wanted it to connect with this idea that I'd had. Uh, as I say, maybe a few weeks before beforehand, um, and it sort of seemed to work quite nicely. I was, um, I think, I was overall quite pleased with it. Um, I think because we've done quite a lot of like work on structure recently, and um, uh, you know, try, sort of doing right likes for some very famous authors. It was one of those ones where I was struggling to really find my tone with it until I started writing the dialogue, which is why I think the dialogue dominates this particular piece which is unusual for me i think i normally go prose really yeah but anyway enough of me uh, i'm um... amazing performance on the dialogue though i thought thank, I, thank worth, no, worth 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 noting for sure thank you i uh i really have to up my game because uh, nico is excellent at doing that kind of thing so you you also you, i got a t-shirt in the first part you're definitely having a t-shirt that says i require more lemons <laughs> <laughs> I did some atrocious things on how to spell all of the words that the king says, just to try and make sure I remembered how to do the voice properly. Oh, no. Anyway, um, Will, have you got a story for us? I, I have, yeah. Um, so, sh shall I... Shall Whenever I just, you're ready, mate, yeah. i go for it. Um, I took the liberty of, 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 of um, reducing the title, so it's just called Sour. Okay. Um, so I'll go from the top. Sour. I can no longer remember where I'd been going or for what reason. How often it happens like that, the original details, the foundations as it were, of a certain journey get superseded 
some strange occurrence or other that comes to pass on the way. How many of our daily strolls, our chores and tasks get overtaken by some sudden flight of imagination, or worse, by some interjection of the lives of others? As I say, I can no longer remember anything at all about this particular trip. It was morning, that's it. And perhaps that is enough to begin with. Let's say it was a summer morning. In fact, let us say, for the purposes of neatness, of symmetry, so to speak, that it was the same day as today, the summer solstice. I had quite possibly woken up in good spirits, much like today. I had taken a cup of coffee out to the bench in the garden, let it cool a little, and drunk it while watching the outrageously overweight wood pigeon take a drink of its own from the pond. Perhaps I did all this, perhaps I did not. As I have previously said, all I remember now, clearly at least, of that morning, is something that happened to me on the road just west of the village, which leads up the hill to the A41, the main road that takes us from here into London. I cannot now recall, for instance, if it was for work that I was taking that road on that day. Certainly this happened at the time of my life when I did work, and when each day I had to take that same route up and out of the village and into the heavy traffic of commuters, who, exactly like I was, were dragging themselves and their cars into the city. Equally, it may have been the weekend, and I may have been simply driving to the dump with some obsolete and broken down machine from the house or garden, or with a boot full of green waste to get rid of. But of course the truth is none of these details are of any importance, if that's the right word, in light of the other facts. In other words, the facts which I can recall. The road we're concerned with goes up a slow incline, one of a number which surround the village, nestled as it is in what I have seen called a knuckle of the hills that dominate this part of the country. We travel uphill then, out past the two white gates that mark the boundary of the village, and as the road passes the entrance to the woods on our right, we come to a small row of large houses on the opposite side. They are, on the whole, old houses, and in fact one or two are built in the vernacular style of the area, brick and flint, one with a thatched roof, the other slate. Some are simply brick, all detached and all with generous gardens that fall away with the dying slope of the hill, affording each a view from their back door one supposes, or imagines, out across the vale as it spreads and flattens north from the base of the hill line. One of the houses, however, is quite unlike the others. It is modern. In fact, we might go so far as to say it is new, which I suppose carries quite a different meaning to modern. I am no expert in architecture, or building for that matter, and so I am only able to give the most general of impressions, to talk simply of how the building strikes me, as opposed to its objective qualities. It seems very new. It is entirely brilliantly white and circular, with a black roof that overruns the walls, and which is set at an angle, rather like a large beret. The impression is of something from the Art Deco era, but somehow much more recent. I struggle to recall if the house was there, or there in its current form, when I was a child. We had often used to use this road to access the woods in those days, driving up from my friend's house in his parents' Land Rover, with their three dogs to walk in the woods. But I was not in the habit of noticing these kind of things then, strange houses which bore no relationship to the others around them, which seemed outlandish in the landscape, which, dare I say it, looked a little ostentatious. No, I simply had the usual common or garden childish obsessions 
such as football and toy guns. And in fact, what I remember most affectionately of all was the little lead figurines from some futuristic interplanetary war that we painted and played out long and strategically cunning battles with. But of course I'm distracting us. On this particular morning, which may or may not have begun, much like today's, on which I am trying my best to set down the real truth of what happened. I had hit some traffic just as I came to this garish white house. That in itself was somewhat of a surprise, as it was a small insignificant road that led down to a small insignificant village. There was, under normal circumstances, no real cause for traffic jams to establish themselves here. But here we were all the same, with a row of cars all slowing first, then stopping, backed up, I now presume, by some difficulty or other at the junction with the A41. Who can say now, all these years later, what the cause might have been? I do know I have never since had any similar trouble, apart from around that time when the Forestry Commission expanded the car park up in the woods, and for a few weeks there was all sorts of disruption caused by the diggers and other work vehicles that had suddenly appeared. They were all rather too big for the road somehow, and made the right turn up onto the track to the woods rather clumsily, rather slowly, and often held up a number of cars that found themselves behind them. And I may say now that on the whole the expansion of the car park up there in the woods has not in fact been a good thing anyway. There are more cars than ever using it now that they can, which makes for a miserable, crowded experience in that part of the woods. The whole thing feels less like a living forest in fact than a forest-themed visitor park, cafes and children's play areas, a go-ape centre with zip wires and climbing apparatus in the trees. All very different to years ago, when the wood itself seemed distraction enough. But no, I sound sour and should like not to. I should not wish to begrudge anyone else their fun, however pitiful I find it. And so now I simply avoid those woods and take myself off elsewhere, where it is altogether quieter. Anyway, as my car came to its stop that morning, just by the White House, a little distance behind the driver in front, quite suddenly a man ran up out of the driveway of the house and out onto the road directly in front of my car. He was wearing a white toweling dressing gown and underneath it what looked like swimming shorts. He had no shoes on his feet. I seem to remember strangely little of the man's physical makeup. I can't recall if he was tall or short, or overweight, or especially thin. His hair might have been a very pale brown. The truth is, I could not tell you if we were to walk past him today. But he stopped in the road and turned to look me straight in the eye through the windscreen of my car. His eyes were wide open. He looked wild, dishevelled, like he'd been up all night. He looked, in fact, quite, quite mad. A kind of horror had distorted his face, and it bent with increasing fear as he looked at me, his hands now slamming themselves onto the bonnet of my car. You, he seemed to say. No, 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 not you. It can't be. I could hear the words. He was almost shouting. No, he said again. Please, God, no. He backed away from the car and wiped his forehead with the sleeve of his dressing gown. He ran back down the drive towards the white house and the traffic picked itself up. I pulled away with the other cars and we drifted towards the junction up ahead and the A road and wherever we were all going. Damn, man, that was fascinating. That was, that was a real journey. <laughs> fascinating stuff. Like establishing that sort of, um, I guess, I guess the term would be like, like, like an untrustworthy narrator right at the start, but not necessarily untrustworthy in the way that people normally say that. It's more like he was like 
unfixed rather than unfocused, I would say. Um, yeah. Whilst being like hyper detail orientated. Um, yeah, In very a fashion, interesting. It, it gave him also almost like a. A sense of greater truth, I think. Like in the, I I, I don't really remember when, when that was, but that's not the bit that matters. Mm, yeah, it gave it a, a depth to the, you know, he wasn't a, a flawless narrator. He didn't remember every tiny moment of that day. You yeah. know, barely remembered some of the the key indicators of, of the the moment it was all building towards, but. But remembered everything yeah. about you know the places he'd been in his childhood because that was something he'd done often. That was nice, just nice. It also draws the draws the line beautifully between that and you know a fairly uh, you know in you know it's it, um, amazing outburst of insanity in the middle of this English idyll. Um, but you know drawing the line between that and the desecration of the land, basically. Um, yeah, I hope that was really interesting. I loved, I loved the language, the rhythm of it. I feel like um, it must be from your poetry or something. But the it 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 was in it was in the words themselves and the way that you that you uh, performed them. But the rhythm of it really um, hooked me and, and kept me coming along in a way that just didn't seem to obey the normal rules of grammar. If that makes sense, you just, it sort of just flowed forwards the story. Which was a really nice. It was like it seemed like almost like effortless, effortless writing. Um, yeah, I suppose that 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 that's a bit of, of of writing that interests me almost as much as um as as any really. It is the, the the sound of words and and their rhythm and and you know a tone a, a a quality of a voice. Can you hit upon a voice that that can that can kind of um generate the material? You know almost of its own accord i i suppose you know that um that i think that first claire louise, claire louise bennett book pond really does that you know the the voice has just got its own kind of like like you say mesmeric um sort of quality that that doesn't then rely on you know um you know narrative or 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 other bits that i that i that i, that I find more difficult <laughs> you yeah. know but it's what it's what each writer has their own um you know, has their own kind of um, place on that particular um, Venn diagram, I suppose, don't they? Definitely, but it, it certainly felt like you created meaning through tone there, mm. um, which is a really cool thing to do, while, with, with it also still hanging together, despite that, like, unfixed um, narrator thing that we were talking about earlier. So, yeah, that was, that was really engaging I'd, and great, I would say. I'd love to see how... I, like I wish we you could print out your brain so we could see how different your and my visual picture are of what was being described because obviously I know the area and you don't Ben oh, and to I see, see yes. how close they would be yeah I think that would be absolutely fascinating yeah I think you'd just run away screaming with <laughs> if I printed my own brain I'd be like yep I know I've been telling myself that <laughs> relentlessly for years it's awful. <laughs> The uh, also solid Warhammer reference in there, love it. Yes. Yeah, that's that's strange bit of synchronicity, isn't it? Um, so we, I, I'm sure our audience is almost bored of us saying this at this stage, but this happens a lot. Yeah. When, and I know it, it sounds like it's a bit of a silly thing to get worked up about because we're work because we're working to a same prompt, we're writing to a same prompt, but 
it's never something really to do with the prompt. It's like, you know, Nico will write something that has the same name as a character as in my story for no reason. Mm. Um, and it's very interesting, just this little wavelength that people get onto. Um, yeah. So for yeah, for, for Nico to spot that kind of like 40k stuff in mine, and then for you to be describing Warhammer at yours, that's it's spooky in a good way. Whatever, yeah. whatever word that that should be. That's also been with friends forever now, Will. Sorry, you're <laughs> yeah. a Warhammer person. You're in. They're knocking on your window, asking for a late night game. Fancy a 2K game? <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was a really really great entry, man. Thank you, thank you for writing that and performing yeah, it. It's lovely. Thanks very much. Thank you, Nico. The wait is over. Oh. Un- unclench your butt. <laughs> <laughs> you're up, son. Most sour. He knew that they were watching him. If the things he'd seen on television were to be believed, it was from the other side of a mirror. It had never occurred to Charlie to find out if two-way mirrors were a real thing. They had to be, he decided. After all, it was too commonly used to be the creation of some scriptwriter somewhere. He focused all his energy on not looking at the mirror, because that's what they want you to do. Play them at their own mind games. He didn't really know what to expect next. It all seemed a foregone conclusion to him. He had, as it stood, been caught mid-murder. Then he had finished the job. Frankly, it was lucky the police here didn't carry guns. In America, they'd have sprayed the best of him against the kitchen cabinets. He fought back a laugh as long as he could but the snort of escaped air was clearly recognisable to even a casual observer. It wasn't even funny. Maybe just comparatively, compared to all of this. The urge came over him to call out, but not something stupid like help. Just, you know, let them know that you know that they know. Just get in here, no point staring at me, or something like that. Best not to antagonise them, he decided. Antagonise, that was going to be a useful word. He had to formulate his defence, because the events of the morning, on their own, were not going to cut it. She poured me a glass of juice, I tasted it, and then I stabbed her to death, officer. He suppressed another chuckle at the madness of it all. It wasn't about the juice. Not in any way, really. It had just been the straw that broke the camel's back. Because she knew, she knew he hated grapefruit. That disgusting, tangy slush. They'd been together for 14 years. She knew. It was all part of her constant mind games. Those soft pushes. But you couldn't say to someone, well, she makes me eat and drink things I don't like. She calls me the wrong name. She changes my clock. Because you would sound mental, wouldn't you? Maybe that was a bloke thing. She seemed to rely on that. A lot. He'd seen people on the internet call it toxic masculinity. He was googling about if it was normal to cry when you were left on your own. The room seemed to be divided between people who said you shouldn't and people who said that the first lot of people were bastards and none of them had answered his question. But he remembered the phrase toxic masculinity. It was confusing, what he read about it. 
be a bloke or whatever, but not really, or else you're a piece of shit. If anything, that just made him more sad. And that wasn't going to do him any good either, was it? It was the toxic masculinity on top of the grapefruit juice. A poisoning. He didn't know the name for what she had done to him. Broken him, he supposed. Not that that was an excuse. I've never hit a woman, right up until I left 36 puncture wounds in my dead wife. Ex-wife, probably grounds for divorce, nearly severing someone's head. Why was that funny? Why was anything? He gave in and stared at the mirror, willing someone to come in and relieve him of the company of his thoughts. But that's all part of the game, isn't it? No worse bastard than yourself to get the punishment rolling. Yeah, but she knew, though. She knew it would make him angry. Why did she always want him to be angry and upset? Why did she push until he stopped loving her? Had he ever actually loved her? Charlie didn't know. He wasn't sure what love was actually supposed to look like. Perspectives get a bit skewed once you start unpicking things. She loved him, or so she'd always said. Was love supposed to be torture? He looked down and wished deeply that they'd let him wash his hands, or change his clothes. It was dry now, a murky brown colour. It had been so bright. The next reddish hue down from the sunrise happening just outside the kitchen window. It was as though the horizon was dragged into the room for him when he'd done it. He remembered every detail of the room, now that he thought about it. How much salt was in the shaker, those clear plastic ones that she had bought. He hated them. You could always see that some had been used. It would be better to not know and then find them empty than always be teetering on the edge of perfection. The ticking of the clock. He was sure he could hear it through her screams. Maybe he was even stabbing in time. She'd screamed so loud. Loud enough for the neighbours. Loud enough for the old Bill. But not too loud for the clock. And he'd always hated the ticking of clocks and she'd put one in every room toxic masculinity will have you play the victim he recalled that he knew he wasn't the victim couldn't be she hadn't murdered him physically at least maybe she'd wanted it the other way maybe she thought he'd kill himself and then she could have had the sympathy. And then she could bring some other poor bastard in. Someone who'd drink the disgusting juice. It hadn't always been like this. He thought about it long and hard. No, there was a turning point. After the accident, when he'd written off the car. They were still young then. Newly married. Oh, he'd loved that car. 21st birthday present. Well done for finishing uni, son. Here's that jag you've always wanted. Bam. Gone in an instant. Seems he had a habit for that. 
those gone in an instant destructive acts. Maybe she'd hit her head funny in the crash. A hospital visit had fucked the honeymoon, that was true. Then it was all adjusting. Maybe he'd broken some part of her. Maybe it was like she said, all his fault. He deserved what he got. Clocks, grapefruit juice, paralysis. Charlie reached for the wheels of his chair, but the chain that linked his hands resisted. It met the iron bar of the table and he couldn't move. He shifted, but the brakes were on. Just like always, he was trapped. The door creaked open, and a woman's head appeared in the gap created by its ingress. Mr Taylor, a detective will be along shortly. Can we get you anything? Food? Drink? He laughed. Of course. It was still breakfast time. And they knew he hadn't eaten. Um, something to drink, please. Water, okay? Or would you like something else? If only she had asked that, he thought. Grapefruit juice. If you have it. Chilling. Okay. Chilling. That guy stewing, spinning out. Oh, well captured. Thank you. Well captured. I'd like to let everyone know, not killed anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. Whew. That's quite a lot to unpack there. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah, it's all right. I think... Really, it like to to get like that violent, to like depict that amount of violence towards women. You've got to kind of get it to pay off in a way that actually promotes some kind of meaning. I mean, people don't have to obviously, but like yeah. it sort of feels like really the, the trend should be going that way rather than just for the sake of it. And that was definitely not for the sake of it. You really explored a fairly simple-minded man and his problems with aggression and buzzwords and his relationship with his wife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As I say again, for the third time, chilling. Yeah. I, I, th I think you, you're, you're spot on Ben about the, the way that it, it, the, the whole story managed to kind of examine the complications of, um, you know, those, those things that, you, that, 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 that get reduced to you know to buzzwords and to and to um kind of obvious um you know uh, kind of pop psychoanalysis but without 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 the speaker you know without you without without it being shoehorned into a kind of a, a speaker who was obviously going to complicate that kind of um that kind of issue so you know it would be easy to have a you know a um a, a philosopher main character who was able to kind of explore those complications, but it's, it's much, mm. it's much, it's much more um, interesting. I think to have, like you said, a, 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 what, who, someone who appears at first to be, to be quite a sort of, you know, regular, regular kind of minded man. Um, yes. Who's still through, through, through actions and consequence um, coming to terms with quite how complicated all that stuff actually is. It suddenly became very real for him. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, you're right. That is it. Was that was a good way to explore that? Um, how like how much is the the recent uh, you know that Amber Heard stuff impacted you here? Do you think? Nick? I don't know. I mean, I I think a lot of it comes from having been. Uh, and we've spoken about it on the podcast before. Up in a way in the studio. And, you know, when you're off doing creative things, you end up talking a lot about that sort of, you know, that part of the psyche and those late nights when you've been in there for 12 hours recording stuff and you drink a bottle of wine and you get really into, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a man? All that sort of ridiculous nonsense, but it's all meaningless, really. But, <laughs> I mean, it is. But the... <laughs> Listen, I, I might be a little bit of a nihilist. That's that's a separate story. But the um, I, you know, there are people I know who do struggle with the idea of processing things like the concept of toxic masculinity, and beyond that, how important it is to not just point at things and say that's toxic masculinity, but to actually explore the root causes of these things and help people to overcome them and help us as a society to actually start dealing with problems instead of just naming them and then moving on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that a lot. It's quite interesting then that you didn't, I don't think you did name check the other thing that was going on in that story, which is also a buzzword, which is gaslighting. So that's, it did say, I did have the line in there. He didn't, doesn't know the name for that. Right. Okay. Ah, so while right. you can infer what gaslighting is, he doesn't yeah. have that frame of reference. Oh, interesting. Because it, it never really occurred to him that she was doing something to him until now when he thought, but she'd put clocks in every room. She did this because she knew it was going to trigger his OCD. Have, being able to see that the salt shaker wasn't all the way full. All these tiny, to use another one of the buzzwords, microaggressions. Yeah. Yeah. So we had, a, we had another uh, synchronicity, Sunrises, Horizons. Yes. That was a, that was a, that was a big one there. Um. But also, just between for the two of you, this like inside the mind of one narrator mulling through something as well. Yeah, I, very very different approaches and different characters, but uh, fascinating. Yeah, I well, I love the setup. I mean, it didn't come out though. Uh, all three stories, you know, both my character and I'm I'm going to assume Will's had a skeleton inside of them, so that's <laughs> skeletons in all three. Yeah, yeah, true. And uh, yeah, and and, um, and 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 there are other there are other skeletons at, at play, aren't there? Obviously, um, yeah. There's there's a there's a there's a soon to become skeletal um, figure in the in the last um, story, yep. and one supposes sort of skeletons in in closets of um, of, of my, my, my. I think the speaker in my story is definitely someone who I feel has got some kind of. Um, uh, evasions going on yeah you know there's yeah, we, definitely, there's definitely yeah. more to, to to them than than they're letting on i think uh whilst we're joking around and stuff i i actually think that all three of those were 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 pretty fun even though i'm saying that about myself like i liked i liked all of them i felt like they were all really different and all responded to the prompts in different ways that, that's a good tiny bookcase episode man I, I found the strong, the prompt really difficult as a leaping off point as well. Yeah, and it, it wasn't until I told you that, Ben, off mic, you said, well, maybe don't try and directly write the prompt. 
use it as a jumping off point. I thought, oh yeah, I kind of forgot that that's how prompts work, <laughs> even though we've been doing this every week for two years. I think it's quite easy to to overfocus on it. Um, yeah, you know, just sort of tunnel vision. Um, but I, I I'm I'm assuming, considering you um, you shortened the prompt for you, for yourself, Will. That did, did you sort of struggle with the most out prompt as well? Yeah, it was the word sour that appealed to me um, more than the kind of um, um, the qualitative sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, it was. Uh, I I I definitely wanted to 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 explore. I suppose the idea of sourness as a as a personality trait, really, or or as a as a as we go back to talking about you know a tone of, tone of voice, I'm I'm interested in in how people communicate um, aspects of their character through the way they 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 speak, I suppose, and the way they, the way they put language together. And I I just thought that 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 word sour, I was like, oh, you know, that I wonder how you could how you might communicate that what would this what would this what would somebody who was sour how what would they talk about what would mm. what would get their goat what would interest them would they be slightly you know what what would their sort of slightly obsessive kind of neuro, neurotic um little foibles be um i know exactly yeah. that mindset that you're talking about where you you find a word or you find an in and you're desperate to explore it as a story um, you know, as a character in a story, or maybe as a story theme, um, and I, I think that's the thing that just keeps us coming back with this uh, short story podcast because we, I, I don't think we've, we've ever written the same story again or close to the same story mm. again, and we've been doing it for two years, and it's just it's so much fun just seeing what comes out when you put in a random prompt. Yeah, and and also sort of knowing what makes a good prompt. I think in this regard, this is an example of potentially a bad prompt, most sour. But, you know, you naturally shortened it to sour and focused on that. I think Nico used this as a jumping off point. And I, I think basically, I, I, know, I know you had it still a bit, Nick, but um, I think I was the only one that kind of kept the, you know, about, you know, it was about lemons. <laughs> My yeah. story was about yeah. lemons, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it was, it was quite hard to get there. And I had to use some old story ideas, not old story ideas, but unused story ideas to do it. Yeah. Fascinating it stuff. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For rich ginger tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren?
do you come up with that shit, man? 